Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute for our policy forum today on Title IX and campus discipline. My name is not Walter Olson, who was identified as the moderator of this. Walter has had an emergency and not been able to uh, appear. Instead, you'll have me, John Samples. I'm a vice president here at Cato. Um, I appreciate you coming here today, and I will begin our meeting, our uh, uh, forum, by giving us a general overview, along with the bios of our two people who will have a discussion about the issue Title IX and campus discipline. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos recently began dismantling the federal guidance on campus sexual assault put in place by the Obama administration. DeVos said her predecessors had created, quote, a failed system that served neither the accuser nor the accused. Ending campus sexual assault was a signature issue of the Obama administration, which waged a concerted five-year effort to end what it said was an epi epidemic of sexual violence on college campuses. Emily Yaffe, contributing editor at The Atlantic, to my left here, recently wrote a three-part series that examined federal and school policies on campus sexual assault and documented the systematic denial of due process for the accused, the junk trauma science used in adjudications, and the disproportionate number of African-American students who are punished. And of course, we can recommend this uh, series to you, which is available online and at The Atlantic. So I would like to introduce him, and uh, Walter thought it was a great idea to bring into conversation Ruth Marcus and uh, Ms. Yaffe on this topic. So first of all, Ruth Marcus. Uh, Ruth Marcus is deputy editorial page editor of The Post. She also writes a weekly column and contributes to The Post partisan blog. Marcus has been with The Post since 1984. She joined the national staff in 1986, covering campaign finance, the Justice Department, the Supreme Court, and the White House. From 1999 through 2002, she served as deputy national editor, supervising reporters who cover money and politics, Congress, the Supreme Court, and other national issues. She joined the editorial board in 2003 and began writing a regular column in 2006. A graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Commentary in 2007. She lives in Maryland with her husband, John Libowitz, their two, two daughters, and the world's cutest dog. <laughs> Emily Yaffe is a contributing editor at The Atlantic, where her series, The Uncomfortable Truth About Campus Rape Policy, was published in September. Prior to joining The Atlantic, she was a longtime contributor to, to Slate, and was their Dear Prudence advice columnist for decades. She has written extensively about campus sexual assault and was a finalist for the 2015 National Magazine Award in Public Interest for her Slate story, The College Rape Over Correction. Her work has appeared in many publications, including Esquire, The New Republic, The New York Times, Texas Monthly, and The Washington Post. She was a John S. Knight Journalism Fellow at Stanford University and is a graduate of Wellesley College. She has a college-age daughter and lives in Maryland with her husband and the world's dumbest dog. <laughs> so what we're going to do here is I'm going to turn over uh, to Ruth uh, to ask questions, and then the conversation will flow from that. Eventually, if it's apt, we'll go to a Q&A, which I think will happen in about an hour or so and uh, we'll conclude around 5.30. Ruth? 
Great, thank you. Thanks so much to Cato. Um, thanks to Emily for all the work she's done and giving me fodder for a couple columns yes. at least, which greatly appreciated. <laughs> and I, but when Emily and I saw each other, she said she had been away from the news for approximately 45 minutes. So had any major media figure or politician been caught up in any scandal in the interim? The answer was astonishingly no. Um, <laughs> But I think it actually gives us the right starting place, which is talk for a bit, if you would, Emily, about the current moment, which is related to but distinct from the work you've done on uh, colleges and universities. What, what do you make of the sexual harassment discussion we're having and right now? And then number two, how does that intersect with the um, issue that you've been writing about for a few years now? Well, I think this is an absolutely astounding, amazing moment. And it shows you uh, how fluid power is because men, I mean, we've seen stories of men who have been enormously powerful for decades, so powerful that they apparently didn't get the memo or ignore the memo, do not display your genitals at work or maul uh, your colleagues. Uh, and got away with it. And we've heard the story. You know, if you wanted to work in Hollywood, you do not anger Harvey Weinstein, Charlie Rose. You know, if you rebuff or if you tell anyone what he did to you, you'll be fired and you'll have a very difficult time in television. And suddenly they are not powerful anymore. They're often some gulag. I imagine some, a, a great play would be all these guys at their therapy well, in the growth. morning. Yeah, you know, talking uh, in a big circle about what they've done. Um, so I think this is absolutely extraordinary uh, that uh, people have been given voice, that they're being listened to. I, I think um, journalists should be given a lot of credit for this because this isn't just a, hey, an accuser comes forward, believe her the kind of meticulous reporting, the uh, whatever confirmation you can have, whatever evidence you have, uh, contemporaneous uh, accounts, this Project Veritas where uh, this uh, uh, right-wing group tried to hoax the Post and sent forth a fake victim of Roy Moore shows how the reporting has really given credibility to the accusers. And you can only hope, I mean, I'd like, to hear what you think that the, this can be a really extraordinary change in the workplace and not just white collar professional workplaces. Again, the Washington Post has done a tremendous story about how blue collar, pink collar service women um, are regularly abused, often by customers, have no recourse. Uh, so a lot has to change and I'm really hopeful about that. Um, I think what happened on campuses is also a lesson in where we don't want to go. And I, I think now is the time to have that discussion because once the revolution gets going, it's hard to contain. And if you go to places uh, that you're writing one justice by creating another injustice, which is what my work on campus sexual assault has been, um, then you delegitimize a really important movement. 
I will say I think there are clear distinctions between um, the campus Title IX uh, situation and punishment and what we're seeing in the workplace. Although I've seen politicians say, you see, told you what was happening on campuses, it's happening in the office, it's the same thing. There's no Harvey Weinstein in the dorm room. Uh, you know, I'm writing about, I'm not writing about professor-student where there is an imbalance <coughs> and your career mm -hmm. can be affected. I'm writing about peer on peer, uh, kids living together 24-7, lots. More like one a reporter putting the moves on another reporter. Exactly. Maybe, well. And, but you live together. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, and there's alcohol, more alcohol <laughs> even than in a newsroom. Right. Okay. Well, there uh, there probably isn't alcohol anymore. There used to be. Well, I, I think we've had, had a policy against uh, really? it for well, years. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the desk drawer, you yeah. know, Lou Grant no longer. Um, so I'm writing about peer-on-peer -peer situations in this free-flowing alcohol culture of uh, casual sex in encounters. So I think drawing the, the distinction, we really need to be careful about that. And, but I, I think there's a danger of taking the lessons from, you know, taking the procedures from campus and applying them to the workplace, which could, again, catch up a lot of innocent <coughs> people or people with no bad intent. And you then get a very subjective system and people's lives are smashed up for no good reason. But I'd love to hear what you think about the connection or disconnection. So I think that the connection probably is in um, something that's been a big element of what you've written about, which has to do with due process. And so, and, and has to do with the nature of what, how you decide what, who to believe, when you decide who to believe, and what process you need in order to figure out what the consequences should be. And I think that we've, we kind of have a, we've thought about that in the Title IX context, <coughs> certainly you have quite a bit. We are still working our way through how to think about that in the workplace. Um, and, and whether workplaces are, different workplaces are different and have different processes do. For example, how do you think about a workplace where you're not hired by the boss, but you're hired by the voters, right? And As in politics. As in politics. And so if the <laughs> voters already knew that you were accused of this behavior and enough of them didn't care and made other choices and so they elect you, is there some... Is it appropriate to think about booting you? Is it not appropriate to think about booting you? What is the entity in the Senate with Roy Moore? We have an ethics process. On the other hand, is, is due process, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi used the phrase due process, I think it was two very long weeks ago about John Conyers. Not um, even that long, and then I think it. Uh, I, well, I thought it was this past Sunday. It was a Sunday ago. Okay. Well, yeah. then quickly backtrack. Right. Yeah. So first, you know, I, I went to law school. I am a really big believer in due process, but I'm, uh, well, 
And, and then it turned out there was enough, kind of as you were talking about with the um, post-reporting, when you hear somebody give a rendition on video and there's corroboration, it's a little hard to sort of argue for waiting for the ethics process. Um, but just to sort of put a pin in this part of our discussion, you, you alluded to this, but elaborate a little bit more. What is it from your knowledge of and reporting on the Title IX process that makes you nervous about what's going on in the real world outside right. the ivy-covered walls? Right. Well, I, you know, we're seeing this extraordinary thing where um, someone's accused. There are generally multiple accusers. There's reporting on it. It's a corroboration. And most important, I think, except for the case of Roy Moore, but he's had various uh, unconvincing uh, denials. These guys have generally conceded and apologized. And there's generally a little. There's, a couple, there's one other really big exception. Don, oh, yeah, OK. Thank you. Yes. You can say the name. Yeah. <laughs> President Trump, in case yes, anybody right, missed it. Yeah. Uh, so in the current. Uh, uh, post-Weinstein. So you've had these apologies and confirmations, and there's a little caveat. Not every detail is as I remember. And I've seen people get slapped for that. I, you know, in no situation. After this is finished, you and I will not remember this exactly the same way. So um, I may remember that you were brilliant, <laughs> and I sat and listened to you, <laughs> enthralled. And I'll remember, and you'll remember the same, the same way. There you so go. So we will be in agreement. Um, so in general, then the men themselves confirm it. So I feel you know, more comfortable about that. You know, yes, what's the procedure they're going through? Well, it's this kind of strange public reckoning, but they have acknowledged, I can't deny this. OK. Um, as it moves forward, what happened on campuses was, and, and it was a very um, deliberate thing. Um, I mean, you hear all the time, believe the victim. Just believe. There's a, uh, there's a police program, start by believing. I think it's quite concerning for law enforcement to have the stance of start by believing. Um, How would you phrase it? Well, if you were the queen of law enforcement, I, I, I actually saw a quote. There was the New York Times had an op-ed by um, uh, two reporters who'd won a Pulitzer for a story about a young woman who was raped by a classic serial stranger rapist. Uh, they didn't believe her, and she got prosecuted for a misdemeanor of filing a false police report. So they were advocating this start by be believing movement, but they quoted one of the female detectives who helped bust the case open, who said, I don't start there. I start by listening very closely and taking what the victim says very seriously, then checking it out. And that's a much better place. I mean, that's almost the only place to start, especially if you're talking uh, in, a, in a forum where there are consequences of losing liberty or at colleges ending your education, you just can't say one side is telling the truth. And we, we hear this all the time. The, the 
uh, Democratic Attorney General of uh, Kentucky. I just, I get this Google alert on campus sexual assault, was speaking in a college there, and he said, we know that 98% of accusations are true. So I want campus procedures to follow from that understanding. Now that, to me, is a little scary, uh, hearing the top law enforcement official of a state say that. That's just not the place to start. And I worry, we've seen this uh, series of men who've like, yeah, you caught me, I did it. So we just assume any accusation means he did it and off with his head, you know, these public figures, that's it. You, it's, you know, you disappear. I actually had no intention of seeing the Louis C.K., movie, I Love You, Daddy, I'd really like to see it now. I mean, it would be much more interesting now, but none of us can see it because he doesn't exist as a um, entertainment public entity anymore. So I'm, I'm kind of, th I'm thinking about the start by believing thing and to sort of transition us into the um, educational environment. I'm wondering if you actually think it, there should be a different set of presumptions or approaches in the two environments. For example, I, I'll, I'll just make this argument. I'm not really sure if I'm endorsing it, but I'll make it for purposes of um, having a good conversation. There is so little um, to be gained from a woman in a work environment coming forward with a claim of sexual harassment or sexual assault. There is just you know, trouble in the office, trouble in getting another job, all sorts of disbelieving. Why did you wait so long? All the things that we've seen, maybe the presumptions are changing, but we have certainly not seen a lot of um, false accusations um, in this context. Um, maybe, the, maybe you should start by believing in that context. And I wonder if you think that the equities are a little bit different in the campus context, where, as you say, you're not talking about um, professor-student relationships. And by the way, I should say I'm the product of a, of a professor-student relationship. <laughs> so, so a little bit of a soft spot for that. It was entirely consensual. Um, uh, but but in, in the peer-to-peer -peer situation, I wonder if we should if your point might be even better taken well, in that situation. But the same argument is made on campuses that why would anyone come forward? Why would anyone put herself through, and it's true, a grueling, miserable process if you're going through this formal um, accusation? You will have to tell the story repeatedly. You will have some, I mean, the, the, what campuses do is all over the place. Some places do have hearings. Uh, some places, unfortunately, have moved to this single investigator model, which the Obama administration pushed, and now the Trump administration is saying we don't really like that, where one person is the uh, investigator, judge, jury, uh, appeal office. Um, but you will be put through a procedure, depending on the campus. This is supposed to all be confidential, but at small schools, everyone knows everything. Um, so the argument is made, come on, no one does that who's not mm -hmm. telling the truth. Now, I think the other side of 
And that is that accurate in your experience? No. Or? And, and it's not just so many of these girls are lying. I mean, it's put in this how many false accusations. I think that is the wrong way to frame it. Um, maybe more wrongful accusations or accusations that shouldn't be brought because this other part is what happened was the absolutely enormous expansion of definition of sexual violation. As um, two Harvard law professors, Jacob Gerson and Jeannie Gerson have written in a fantastic paper, if any of you deal with Title IX on a regular basis, um, the sex bureaucracy, they say essentially on campus, any encounter that has any kind of sexual content can later be seen as a violation. I mean, you, the, the rules are written on many campuses, uh, no, sex, no unwelcome sexual jokes, no unwelcome flirtation. And when you put unwelcome, how do you know if flirtation's welcome? Do you start flirting? What if it's unwelcome? Do you say, may I flirt with you? Um, in the that may be a very unwelcome question. So, so people have truly gotten in trouble for jokes um, and unwelcome behavior. So part of when you're, you're talking believe the accuser, rape gets thrown around a lot, whereas we're looking at a whole panoply of behaviors. And I think that does go into the office where very rarely would it be a Harvey Weinstein rape, but someone is flirting with me, bothering me, invading my space. Well, you have, but you do have that hierarchy. That's not true. Well, you have, a, you have a bunch of things that aren't true on campuses, right? You have a hierarchy. Um, you have a lot more alcohol. Mm -hmm. We both have college students. I hear they drink. Um, uh, but, well, actually, let me stop there. But talk about alcohol and its role in this whole discussion. Okay. I got into this whole subject kind of d unintentionally. Um, I was doing Slate's advice column. I, I got a lot of uh, alcohol-related letters, things that happened after drinking. Was it rape or not? And, and then at the time, there were a series of very celebrated cases, Steubenville, Ohio, a high school case. There was this case the same time at Annapolis. And I... There's a through line to all of those cases. The young woman who was assaulted was passed out, blackout, severely drunk. And so I started looking into it. And um, I said, you know, I, I ended up writing a piece. I didn't write the headline. Headline was, College Women Stop Getting Drunk. The day um, it went up on Slate, it was, uh, and I'd worked on it for months, talk to administrators. You know, it wasn't just an op-ed. I really did a lot uh, of You know, I would like to say, and I saw you said that previously, and I really resent that. No, it's not just an op-ed. It's what okay. I do for okay. a living. But, okay. So, but not, okay. it was not just a lousy op-ed, unlike Ruth Marcus's <laughs> great op-eds. Um, I'm saying it wasn't just an opinion piece. I, okay. So um, <laughs> it was 3,000 words long. So it takes you at least 10 minutes to read within seconds of this piece being posted. And I remember I said to my husband, I said, oh, you know what? Maybe no one will read it. And he said, mm, I don't think so. Uh, so within seconds of being post posted, I started getting Twitter attacks just because of the headline. Many people never bothered 
to, to read it. And in fact, the excoriation went international really quickly. Um, and, but my argument was, we have a culture on campus of binge drinking. That is very bad for everyone. Um, more males than females walk off roofs. More males than females choke on their own vomit. Uh, but more young men die from this. But there is a thing that happens to young women, way more than young men in that state, and that is sexual assault. Or even you can be, we, you know, we never really talk about blackout states where people are, can be walking, talking, making jokes, seeming to be coherent and agree to having sex. And in the morning, I mean, you see this over and over again. In the morning, they're in bed with someone and their clothes are off and have no idea how they got there. So I was just arguing. I was, you know, I was called a carry nation, et cetera. Kids are going to drink. I, I just argued, stay in your limit. Find out what your limit is and stay there. And then you're way less likely to have bad things uh, happen. And uh, you obviously would know the reaction to that. I assume you all know just victim blaming, victim blaming, ba blame the victim. Um, in the excoriation, I had a line saying, if a sexual assault happens, the perpetrator is entirely responsible for that. And I literally saw people, that there was a, you know, a article about what I'd written, and it said, Emily Yaffe said the victim is, quote, responsible for her own sexual assault, because I'd used the no, word responsible, and so they put that in quotes. Um, so I think alcohol is enormously important. Studies show 80 plus, depending on the study, percent of the cases that are brought involve alcohol. They're the kind of cases that law enforcement says we can't make heads, head nor tail because usually both uh, people are drunk. And we were, we're not talking about it because uh, that's blame the victim. So young women aren't getting the message. I mean, we can tell someone, if you're in a restaurant and you go to the bathroom, don't leave your purse and your phone on the table, because if it's not there when you get back, who's responsible? The thief. But you could have done something to secure your property better. But we can't, we, we can't even have that conversation. And I think schools don't want to deal with it, because if they really, really did deal with it, you know, putting aside Brigham Young, no one would be coming to a school where you know you can't have any alcohol at all. Or the other thing is, it pushes the alcohol off campus. So you see a lot of campuses where the further out you go, the seedier the housing, and that's where the drinking goes on. So the Obama administration came in and wrote these regulations. When they wrote the regulations, the argument was colleges and universities have for too long swept the problem of sexual assault on campus under the rug. They, it was something they didn't want to have to deal with. They, it was going to be terrible PR for them. They dissuaded people from coming forward with, women from coming forward with complaints. And, and that was a terrible injustice. Um, accurate state of affairs or not? 
I, I think there's no doubt you can show that there are cases where it was not taken seriously enough. And certainly going back, you know, a full generation ago uh, and further, yes, I, I, I mean, everyone says certainly that was the case. The, it's kind of a caricature to say until the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, which went out from the Obama administration, which caused this earthquake, which they both, people in the administration say, we've changed things forever. And other people say, what are you talking about? We just clarified the existing guidance. We didn't do anything. So I'm not sure you can hold both at the same time. So people say, until that, everything, I mean, I have seen swept under the rug 10,000 times, you know, the, the saying administ administrators would just demean young women, never listen to them. They wanted to protect their reputation. I was just reading, and I hadn't read it prior to writing my book. A uh, book by Harry Lewis came out, I think, around 2006. Harry Lewis, the dean of Harvard College. Former dean of Harvard College. Father-in-law, by the way, of David, David Farenthold, yes. Washington Post reporter. It's a small world. Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter. Just another plug. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so his book came out in 2006. He had been dean of Harvard College, and he was looking back. One of the chapters is about uh, sexual assaults on campus, and he was looking back through the 80s and 90s. And uh, I mean, I was in this groundhog day. I was like, my God, everything, I all this reporting and digging. It's right here in this book. It keeps happening over and over. And it's the same kind of cases and the same kind of arguments. Women saying trauma means you can't remember. So the adjudication should take that into account. So this has been happening so in waves. Colleges were appropriately responding in the past? I, you know, or? there are 4,600 institutions of higher education. I, you know, I've seen stories of awful stories of young women who clearly were raped, treated abominably. But to say, no, there was no, never any adjudication, and no one took this seriously, and no one was punished, is, is also not the case. But I, I sign off on the Obama administration saying, we want this taken more seriously. We want better procedures. We want some uniformity in the procedures. Um, so that's you know, fine, let's say that without the hyperbole of saying no one ever took it seriously before, because that's not true. I mean, women have been writing names on bathroom walls. There's just a case now at uh, Spelman and Morehouse. That, you know, that was happening in the 90s. It was a cover in Time magazine about women at Brown doing this. So there have been waves of attention to this, but I think... Um, saying, okay, we need clearer, better procedures, and the Department of Education, through its Office for Civil Rights, will clarify to schools what we expect you to do when an accusation comes forward is all well and good. So the world after the Dear Colleague letter, is it a better world than the world before the Dear Colleague letter, or is it a worse world? And please elaborate. Again, I... And explain a little bit what, how I think you probably need to explain a little bit how colleges and universities, what the Dear Colleague letter said and how colleges and universities responded to it. Very briefly, um, 
read Stuart Taylor's book on the <laughs> campus rape frenzy who will explain um, the, dear the Dear Colleague letter laid out, it said, you have been doing a terrible job and that's coming to an end. Um, we are going to punish you severely if you don't get on this and start and taking care of it. And by severely, we mean your federal funding. We will, nuclear option, because that's all they had, because they can't levy fines. We will pull your federal funding if we find you're in violation of Title IX and you don't take care, you don't go along with what we say about it. But then there were a series of um, descriptions of what should, ha of what should happen. Uh, for example, um, no uh, cross-examination one student to another, which I totally agree with. I don't think the accused student should directly uh, cross-examine the accuser, but essentially schools said, okay, you know, cross-examination is out. The two people were not in the same room. Um, what this system kind of came into place where the accused could write out in advance a few questions to ask of the accuser or other witnesses, which were asked at administrator's discretion. And often the discretion was, we're not asking these questions. So, um, so there were a series of things the schools had to do. But then what happened was the schools went off and running because they were in terror of being investigated by the Office for Civil Rights, which was ratcheting up the investigations. And what happened was usually, previously an investigation would be about a case, and the investigators would come in and, and examine it. Had the school violated Title IX or not? Close it over and out. The Obama administration made the list of schools under investigation public. So it was a terrible, reputational blow. Now, Harvard University was on the list. That's not going to affect their applications. But schools that live and die on you know, tuition-paying students, this was very bad. And then what happened was these investigations became these kind of massive class action investigations. There are some that are still open six years later. So you live under these rules. So to avoid attracting the attention of OCR, schools started creating a just absolute Soviet-style, um, you know, a Star Chamber, Kangaroo Court, what Orwell and Kafka can't come up a lot. Very common for a student to never be told explicitly in writing what it is you're accused of doing. There was a case the day Betsy DeVos had the first hearing listening to accused students and, uh, and accusers you know, saying, we're going to change things. That day, um, a civil suit filed against Skidmore because since the 2011 letter, there have been about 200 civil suits filed by young men saying I was treated unfairly. A male Skidmore student who had been expelled two years prior was reinstated by a judge who found not only had the student not been told what he was supposed to have done to get him expelled, the expulsion never uh, laid it out. And the outlines of the case were, as the judge wrote, um, two students had gotten into bed voluntarily. She agreed it was consensual, taken off their clothes consensually. They agreed they would have not, not have intercourse, which they both agreed didn't happen. Almost two years later, because there's no statute as long as you're in school on when you can file a complaint. 
she filed a complaint that what happened that night was not consensual, and he was expelled. Now, you know, this boy almost two years later gets the notice, come talk to the gender and equity Orwellian title office about something you did on the night of February 15th, whenever, and we're not going to tell you exactly what it is. That's not okay. And that happened all over the country. And that, you know, I've written about cases, Stewart and Casey Johnson's book is chock full of cases. And when those of us who write about it get attacked as, oh, well, you're just picking, doing cherry-picked one-offs. There are a whole lot of cherries. These are systematic abuses, and they happened all over the country. So, so the pre-Dear Colleague letter world, for whatever problems it had, is a pre- Eden. Uh, a preferable world. For an accused. Well, no, I'm talking it. about kind of society. You're the yeah. determiner of societal benefit. Are we better off um, pre-divorce, post-Dear Colleague letter, or were we better off before the Dear Colleague letter went out? I have no objection, as I say, to saying this is a serious problem that must be taken seriously. I agree with that. But then when you say, and we're going to expand the definitions to include basically everything and take away the rights of the accused and put the accusers through this miserable process, that's not better. I have spoken to young women who I absolutely believe were raped by classmates on campus. They have not come forward. And they've said, I don't want to be the brave victim on my campus. I just want to go on with my life. I don't want to be asked a lot of questions, but I don't want to get caught up in this awful system. Now, I don't, if you're making an accusation, a system is going to be very unpleasant. But the whole, everything that happens around it is also, I think, is encouraging cases that shouldn't be brought forth, perhaps possibly discouraging some cases that should be brought forth, and punishing people who shouldn't be punished. That is not a good system. So we have this other potential system called the criminal justice system. I, uh, when you talk to some college and university presidents, they seem as if they would love if the criminal justice system could solve this problem for them, but um, that is not their choice because it has been determined that Title IX covers this. How do you think we should think about the role of the criminal justice system in dealing with campus sexual assault? That is a really difficult, complicated one, and and people have different points of view. Uh, I know the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education really feels, take it to the criminal justice system where there are rules of evidence, there are rules there. They, They are experienced investigators, and if there's nothing there, you know, that will be the end of it. I have a lot of qualms about that because, as I'm saying, I think so many of these cases, they they don't even rise to a criminal matter. But once you're caught up, again, once the accused is caught up in a criminal justice system, well, now he has to hire a lawyer. Lots of people can't, you know, they're broke sending their kids to school. Um, 
some of the excellent attorneys who handle these cases, well, you need a $15,000 retainer. I mean, this is beyond the reach of uh, many people, and, and I just don't see them as uh, criminal. So I don't, I, I see, I, I, I like to read comments on stories, and you see over and over people. That is just a really bad idea. They can be very illuminating. I'll tell you the comments. Um, on Rolling Stone, as that was unraveling, they had everything in, you know, people at UVA were reporting in real time what had, was really going on. But a lot of people over and over say, why, where are the police? Just call the police, just call the police. Now, I do think there's a problem when someone comes like a, in the Rolling Stone story with a story of clearly uh, felony action I feel the school needs to say, look, you, accuser, can say to the police, I'm not talking to you, but we have to notify the police because we believe potentially a felony has happened on our campus. Um, but I have seen, because I, you know, I get the sluice gate of cases, and I've actually talked to lawyers uh, who've represented young men who've been through a Title IX and criminal justice, and been on trial, uh, and been acquitted because the case was ridiculous. Um, and I, you know, the the prosecutors are going to be under the same pressure that the Title IX administrators, that the school administrators are, to show we are serious about this. I've talked to these these criminal defense attorneys and said, how did this case? get brought. And she said, look, I don't really blame the prosecutor. You have a victim who's crying and convincing, and they do no investigation. They just take the case. And then on the stand, the whole thing falls apart. So I don't think we want to see more of that. And there will be false convictions in that. So I, I think the answer is more societal, kind of a ratchet back of the definitions. I think giving prosecutorial discretion, in quotes, to Title IX officers is really important. Right now, if someone brings an um, accusation at school, you're off and running. You have to launch the whole thing. You have to do a big formal investigation. And I think administrators should be able to say, given the facts you present, this doesn't rise to our definition of sexual assault. We have counseling. We have all sorts of things we can offer you, but we're not going to start a punitive process. Um, so speaking of punitive process, one of the things that has been the biggest subject of, one of the biggest subjects of debate has to do with the standard of proof and the difference between the standard of proof in the criminal context beyond a reasonable doubt and what the guidance letter said, which is preponderance of the evidence. Right, how, that was another important How thing. big a deal is that? And how would you decide that? How, how, what would things be like in the Yaffe-verse? Um, I think that was a big deal. The, the 2011 letter said every school must use preponderance of the evidence, which a whole institution of Title IX uh, advisors and counselors, uh, industry was created to help schools navigate. And in the training for Title IX people, it's often described as, I've seen it as 50% plus a feather. I have even seen 50% plus a grain of sand. 
Now, I don't think that's an appropriate um, standard of evidence if you are talking about ending someone's education and potentially all their professional prospects. The elite, many of the more highly ranked schools use clear and convincing, which is kind of considered 70% li likelihood. It's below. Um, Did I misstate it when I said that the guidance letter said preponderance? It said preponderance. Okay. It was absolutely yeah. required. But prior to that, schools had been, uh, Princeton, for example, was the last holdout using clear and convincing and then was required by the Department of Education to go to preponderance. So uh, per, uh, preponderance is 50% plus a feather. Clear and convincing is about 70, 75% likelihood, and that beyond a reasonable doubt, which is, I think Stanford used it. I mean, literally a handful of schools used it. So we're talking about preponderance versus clear and convincing. I think clear and convincing is a much more appropriate standard. And at some schools, complying with OCR, which used preponderance for sexual misconduct matters, used clear and convincing for plagiarism, for violence, for theft, for, you know, cheating. Um, so clearly schools, you know, there are places which would prefer to do that. And the Trump administration has allowed them to do both, which has gotten screams, you know. And schools, because of the messenger, because it's coming from the Trump administration, and I completely understand, schools are saying, we are going to do everything possible to resist these new rules, and we would never move to clear and convincing. But I do think that would be a more appropriate standard. So um, I'm going to give you a magic wand. Um, you, and in, with this magic wand, you are going to tell um, Secretary DeVos they've rescinded the Obama guidance. They've put out a sort of interim, but they're developing regulations. What, what should they do? Use your wand. Okay, I'm a journalist. I don't have to, I just have to point out what's no. wrong, right? <laughs> no. Okay. Oh, Marcus, edit op-ed. Uh, well, you know, there is revenge. Yes, okay. Uh, I think their interim guidance has some important things I totally agree with. They have said uh, these adjudication, the whole process must be free of sex stereotypes. Uh, must be free of bias, must be free of institutional <clears throat> bias. There must be an assumption of fairness. One thing I would absolutely do, uh, there's this really pernicious uh, thing that goes on, the training materials on campus. The Title IX people get training in how you do these adjudications and what you look for. These training materials, again, Stewart and Casey wrote a fabulous piece for Weekly Standard you should look at where they looked at the secret training materials. The schools say the, you, it, the accused can't have them, but they've come out in, in some uh, litigation. They are so full of appalling things. You know, who, who is more likely to be a perpetrator? Often it is the young man who is a community leader, who gets good grades, who is well-respected. This is who you're supposed to find is terrible. Um, it is well known that almost all accusers are telling the truth. Now, these secret materials completely drive 
uh, adjudicators to findings of guilt. So I would immediately make all of them public, which at least, you know, shine some sunshine on this. Again, I would take the definitions and shrink them so that we are trying to really identify the wrongdoers, put them through the criminal justice system if necessary, or at least remove people who really clearly are violating codes of conduct instead of trying to churn up um, more accused. Um, I would change. Oh, are, we, are we in a situation of trying to churn up more oh, accusers? Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, we'll see what happens with the Trump administration. There was tremendous pressure during the Obama era to show we're finding these people because it all, it all flows from there's an epidemic. One in five young women is going to be sexually assaulted. Uh, the, the movie The Hunting Ground said, how many people were expelled from Stanford for this? Zero. How many people were expelled from Harvard in the past 10 years? One. So schools were under enormous pressure to find people, put them through procedures to expel people. I, I have like three pages of quotes from college administrators saying, because there, there are annual reports of um, how many crimes have occurred on campuses. It's most common for schools to report zero rapes. And school after school says, we are desperately trying to increase our number. <laughs> no one says, we have dealt with this problem. We are so proud no rapes were reported last year. Schools that are listed as like number one, two, and three, most rapes in the country, proudly put out press releases. We are, uh, we are encouraging, we have a campus in which uh, victims are encouraged to come forward and report. I mean, it's, it's, it's this but kind of topsy-turvy. The, the one in five numbers, so uh -huh. there was a lot of discussion about whether the definition of sexual assault was so broad there that it included, you know, the minor, it does, very minor things. But then I thought it was the survey was redone in a more appropriate way and contained way and came up with similar results. Am I misremembering that? There have been many subsequent surveys that had that all coalesce around the one in five, but they all have the same definitional problems. They describe something which clearly would fit the definition of a crime. And that's it. the question is, has the following ever happened to you? You are anally pen penetrated without consent and against your will. Someone um, rubbed up against you over your clothes in a sexual way, which in the college environment is grinding on a dance floor. So that's all one question, and that's how you get to one in five. And then various surveys have various other ways. You know, they define, when they're doing an intoxication, they'll define, were you incapacitated, drunk, out of it? Okay, so you can be drunk and consent. Drunk is not incapacitated. What is out of it? Mean. So it's this kind of thing. One of the, the um, AAU survey, which got a lot of attention a couple of years ago, we have confirmed one in five. One of their questions was, um, uh, check yes if you know, these, one of these things happened to you against your consent 
or if you think it might have happened, but you're not sure. So read the questions. I, I encourage everyone to read the questions to see if you think how fair that is. So I don't think you used your wand enough. So uh, you're going to make the at least the training materials public. Mm -hmm. What else are you going to do? Prosecutorial discretion, clear and convincing. You're going to um, mandate clear and convincing. Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> Uh, redefining uh, sexual okay. assault. And then for procedures, put in, you know, completely revamp the procedures so they're clear, transparent, free of bias. I don't know how you do that with a profession that's grown up to find people responsible for sexual assault. I think that's a real problem. But if, I think if you, you know, it's kind of like smoking. You need some regulatory reform, and you really need cultural reform. What do you do about counsel? About? Lawyers. Should people have lawyer? I mean, I mean do, who gets a lawyer? I think this is a absolutely tremendous problem, because who gets a lawyer? The people who can afford lawyers. And I have spoken to many um, young men who's, who families have nothing, uh, who were ashamed to tell their parents, who just slunk away. I've talked to young men who, who said, you know, but I thought if I told the truth, it would all be all right. I, I hear this over and over, because I get young men sometimes find their way to my inbox and say, okay, this thing has happened to me. And I sometimes talk to them, not, you know, for doing a story, just, and you hear this, well, but I'm going to tell the truth, and I think it'll be okay. No, it won't. There's a case um, at Hobart, William Smith. This is, ended up in the criminal justice system. He was acquitted when he was accused. Um, you're allowed to bring in, uh, not, you're allowed to bring in an advisor of your choice. His advisor of choice was his father, but his father was a lawyer, so the school said no. Can't bring in dad. His younger sister, sophomore, was a student at the school. That was his advisor. What he said in the hearing, the whole hearing, the transcript was turned over to the prosecutor. He was not given his Miranda rights. He was not, you know, the school, no school should have a sophomore younger sister as the advisor for someone who's facing the kind of consequences he was facing. You're going to have a hard time getting schools to, Columbia University uh, um, supplies attorneys uh, for accuser and accused, and I believe Harvard Law School does. But I certainly think people should be allowed to have them. I think it would be great if they paid for them, but, but good luck. But then on the other hand, do you want the attorney the school provides for you? So, Great, should we start yes, with questions? Yes, let's go to Q&A. Uh, so as said, we'll have questions and answers now. We have four rules to govern the Q&A, though I don't have a magic wand. These are the traditional well, if ones. You, if you're really nice, you can get one, too. Believe me, these rules yeah, have yeah. a lot of discretion. Uh, but I won't exercise it. Please wait to be called on. A microphone will come to you so everyone can hear your question as well as the people online. Um, announce your name and affiliation and then who you want to direct the uh, question to, though presumably a lot of them will go to Emily Yaffe. Uh, and finally, please make sure that your question is in the form of a question. 
So who would like to go first? Um, lady here, right here. I'm going to be, <clears throat> the other thing is I'm rude and point at people and say on the aisle, which I just did. Sorry about that. <clears throat> yeah. I'm Roberta Stanley. I'm a former Title IX coordinator for the state of Michigan. And um, I'm a proud Michigan State grad, which could raise some issues. But one thing you two alluded to, which I'd like to have you address, is the police forces on the campuses. Some are elaborate, some are minor, but the extent to which they use the city or the county police as adjunct or their you know, police force, or that they just keep it contained within the campus community. It seems to me that might be problematic in this arena. Well, this is, you know, in, um, there, there's legislation, um, the CASA bill, Campus Accountability and Safety Act, uh, which uh, mandates a clear memorandum of understanding uh, between uh, the local police and the school. I, I you know, I, I just think there should be, it, it varies school to school, it varies how well the campus police are trained. Um, Uh, yes, it's, I don't think, going to go anywhere, but it, it says there needs to be clearer um, lines. But that, that's an area I just don't know very much about. But you mentioned the power of college presidents. I just want to tell um, one recent story. The University of Texas, there was, and this is illustrative of Title IX, uh, there was a case. Uh, brought uh, accusation uh, that sex that happened between a young man and woman. I think it was brought some months later. They were out at an all-day event. They were both drinking all day. They had sex later that evening. Um, she later says, I was too drunk to consent. So they go through the whole Title IX process. Um, he said, yes, we were both drinking, but she was walking, talking. She seemed fine. She consented. Um, he was cleared. The father of the girl is a very wealthy man, made a very big donation to the University of Texas, Austin, got put on a school advisory board, and the president of the university personally reversed the finding and had the boy expelled. That was just settled. The school vacated the expulsion, and he's now back in school because he filed a civil suit. Uh, the gentleman three over toward the middle there. Wait for the microphone, please. Pete Kersenhauser, Great Falls, Virginia. Uh, the question about the, why not the legal system, why not the justice system, uh, you, asked, you asked the question, you kind of waffled around about it again, and I've been watching these things for a couple of decades, and I'm still not satisfied with the answers. Why is it that we have this extrajudicial system where the administration can be the judge, jury, and executioner, where the accused gets no rights whatsoever? I mean, at least in the legal system, you have the presumption of due process. 
I mean, you, you should get the due process. It doesn't always happen that way. So why hasn't someone brought a Supreme Court case yet where the Supreme Court can rule on whether this whole thing is constitutional? Because, you know, standing here in Cato, it certainly sounds to most of us who are libertarians that this is totally unconstitutional. I have talked to uh, people who are campus law experts who deal with the law of higher education, and they're waiting for a case. They, you know, I, they, they, right. But let me tell you, I know what you mean. You do not necessarily want your accused son going into the criminal justice system. You really don't. I've seen too many cases where um, the charges should not have been brought, and then you're really, really in hell. Well, I, I mean, I, I, can, I will give you um, what it's I think lawyer. is the correct legal answer here. And if I mess up the legal answer here, Stuart will pop mm -hmm. up and correct me. Um, but we have a law, Title IX. It prohibits sexual discrimination uh, by, by uh, educational institutions that receive federal funds. Sexual discrimination has been interpreted, uh, including by the Supreme Court, um, in Title IX and also in Title VII, so that gets us to workplace settings, um, to include uh, sexual harassment. Uh, you can disagree with that, but it is, and if Congress wanted to disagree with that, um, kind of good luck with that, um, uh, it could rewrite the law in some way, um, but it hasn't and it's not going to. And it's been the law in both those areas, Title VII and Title IX, for many years. Once you have a situation where uh, you have sexual harassment understood to be a form of sex discrimination, and, and I'm just going to say for my own purposes, I would say understood correctly to be a form of sex discrimination, then you have um, workplaces, private workplaces, public workplaces, and um, colleges and universities required to make sure that they have their um, areas free of uh, sex discrimination slash sexual harassment. Once you do that, then you've um, created a requirement on these places to protect um, both accusers and accused, both victims and perpetrators. And you have a set of situations that I think appropriately doesn't, w might not rise to the level of uh, criminal activity, criminal conviction, but that you might decide are not um, appropriate behavior, acceptable behavior, within your environment, whether it's a workplace or a college campus. I mean, think about, this is a, only by analogy, but think about um, the, set, the congressional ethics committees. You have a lot of situations where, say, somebody is, uh, Robert Menendez, uh, a case against him ended in a hung jury. Imagine, just for purposes of this argument, that the prosecutors choose not to retry him, okay? Criminal justice system has worked its process. He was, the jury was unable to find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Does that then mean that the Senate Ethics Committee and the Senate should ignore the allegations against him? 
Or is there a different set of standards that you apply to who you want in your community and what behavior you find acceptable in your community? Um, I would argue in that case, I would be a really big believer in the Senate Ethics Committee looking at the Menendez evidence and allegations and determining um, with due process um, what consequences should be for him. So that would be my answer to your why not only the criminal justice system question. Did I do okay, Stuart? Her answer. <laughs> yeah, footnote by Justice. The leading Supreme Court case on this is Davis versus Give him a microphone so we can all hear. The leading Supreme Court case on this is Davis versus Monroe County in 1999. It was actually an elementary school case, but it's the leading case. And in that case, the court upheld a lawsuit by a young uh, victim of harassment. And they said that, uh, at least in the context of that kind of a lawsuit, civil rights lawsuit, if the alleged harassment was severe, very offensive, and pervasive, then there's a sexual harassment case against the school. And pervasive has been erased from the law by the Office of Civil Rights and by all the universities in the country following its commands. Therefore, an isolated case of one woman who says she was assaulted in an off-campus apartment uh, and she and the accuser, the accused, both went to the same universities. First time anybody's ever alleged it in 50 years. They're on the hook. The, the college is treated as the, uh, the violator, and, and that is just in defiance of Supreme Court precedent. Why aren't there more Supreme Court precedents? Uh, as Emily could detail, the average guy who wins in court has a much bigger incentive to settle and get his name out of the popper than he does to ride it on up. And the university will give him a settlement and so these cases never get near the Supreme Court. The best, the most egregious cases do settle. So they're not making law. So that's, that's part of the problem. If you are lucky enough to have the resources to bring a case. So, you know, that, that's, that's, that's an issue. We don't, the settlements are generally confidential. Uh, the woman on right next to the door named Kathy Young. Hi, Kathy Young, Reason Magazine. Uh, uh, my question is, uh, to both Emily and Ruth, uh, do you think that the uh, post-Harvey Weinstein sort of Me Too moment, as well as you know things like the Republican Party deciding to throw its weight behind Roy Moore, do you think that that's going to kind of set back the effort to reform Title IX uh, procedures, you know, coming from the Department of Education, because everything is kind of tainted by, you know, the current moment? Um, I, I'm gonna just say something I don't usually say, which is I don't know. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the implications of the Weinstein moment, having lived through the Anita Hill moment. Um, but it's, my instinct is that the Department of Education is pressing ahead with its regulations, but TBD. 
Um, I, I agree with Ruth, it is two tracks. And if the Department of Education says to schools, you will be on the hook now if your procedures are grossly unfair to the accused, that will have an effect at schools. But I think uh, this generally is going to be a very bad time to be accused of anything. Gentleman on the aisle here. Right up there, yeah. To your right. Yes. Kind of on the aisle. Hello. Um, Mike Dolhurst, Charles Koch Institute. Um, so obviously, um, aside from just students on campus, there's also professors. So I was wondering, in your experience, how does sort of the murky or vague due process with Title IX interact with the much stronger protections tenured professors often have in terms of protecting job employment? And is there a conflict there? I'm going to totally punt on that because I very deliberately stayed away from those cases where there is this power differential. You have people with tenure. You have much clearer rules of conduct. So I, I'm sorry, uh, I've limited my reporting to peer on peer. But I will say I'm hearing more. I mean, the Laura, what Laura Kipnis has been through, a few, uh, Laura Kipnis, a professor at Northwestern who's... Um, written a fabulous book, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, about all these rules and the sexual paranoia on campus. And so in writing about the excesses of Title IX, she has been brought up multiple times on Title IX charges for you know, creating a hostile atmosphere. I know lots of professors who, um, you know, feminist professors who are very concerned about due process, et cetera, and basically said, uh, I know I'm going to get a Title IX complaint. So that is something I'm concerned about, but I just, I don't have the experience to answer the question beyond that. Woman third from the door. Hi there, my name is Alex Lehman. I'm a student at the School for Ethics and Global Leadership. Uh, and I was hoping uh, either Ms. Marcus or Ms. Uh, Yaffe, you could speak to the role of Title IX protections at the high school level um, and perhaps further elucidate on the discourse surrounding sexual assault um, at that age. Is that something you've dealt with, Emily? Again, no, because uh, what interests me is on campus you're talking once you turn 18, about young adults. In high school, it's, it's, it's very different. You're not living together. You're minors. Um, I will say I'm concerned about there's uh, a movement to bring consent education down to the earliest levels. You know, People are saying, you can't just start teaching people at college about this. It's way too late. We need to start in elementary school. Now, one part of me says, well, of Yes, you you know you obviously need to teach your children in age appropriate ways about their bodies and consent and not touching, uh, etc. What worries me is the kind of rhetoric I I've seen. Literally, I've seen people seriously. This was reported on NPR. You can look it up. It should start with asking a baby's permission to change its diaper. I am not making that up. Now, I don't know what I would, how you get an answer with a nonverbal. Uh, oh, I think baby. they have ways of telling you. Well, no, no, can I, can I change it? Now, when they are old enough to tell you, 
so, darling, I think you need your diaper changed. No. Then what? Then what? And the Girl Scouts this year put out a holiday warnings for parents, grandparents, horrible aunts and uncles, no hugging and kissing without getting permission from the children first. You know, the go hug grandma, Ugh, I don't want to. Now, I will say, if you have a child who's on the autism spectrum and has a problem with touching, okay. But just the grandma hugging you is a boundary violation. This is, I mean, it's ridiculous, but what's concerning is who is going to be teaching this? And I fear a return of McMartin's satanic abuse I mean, you can see very easily if people are told any adult who touches you without your permission is bad and you must tell me. So you're, you know, a four-year-old's at a friend house, it's raining, dad picks the kid up to put her in the back seat of the car, Mr. Mitchell touched me. These things are going to happen, and that's concerning to me. This woman directly ahead. Yes? Thank you for actually setting up my question. So um, we've talked today a lot about policies on campuses and laws in particular, but I would love to know from you ladies a little bit more about how we got here. Like, why is it a real guidance to say something like unwanted flirting? Or how did we get to this like Girl Scout rule about like hugging people? Because I, I don't know. Can both of you or one of you please speak to that? Because I think it is important to talk about public policy and policies on campus. But I personally am more concerned with what I see are some greater societal ills around personal responsibility, communication, agency, all of those things. Well, I think what happened in the Obama administration is that um, they... Joe Biden, uh, violence against women has been a defining issue for him. He's the author of the Violence Against Women Act. When he came in as vice president, he wanted to do something big on violence against women, but it was an unclear what. In 2010, NPR had a Peabody Award-winning series on campus sexual assault, and they told a series of terrible stories and that was a galvanizing moment for the administration, and that's how they decided to focus on Title IX and use Title IX. And so they were off and running, and I think what happened, unfortunately, and this happens either side in our politics, that there's no middle, there's no coming together, there's no we must listen, get everyone around the table. The people who were around the table were the activists. So civil libertarians weren't around the table. Uh, defense lawyers weren't around the table. And as it went on, uh, you know, parents of accused weren't around the table. So they were only hearing one thing. And people, there was a, uh, Biden's top aide dealing with violence against women, one of her top aides. Uh, went from the Obama administration to Know Your Nine, which has uh, been a very effective activist group. So there was a lot of cross-currents between the advocacy community um, and the Obama administration. I talked to a, a couple of uh, OCR, uh, Office for Civil Rights Investigators, as this change was going on, and they uh, said to me, 
the advocates community absolutely had the administration's ear and were kind of saying, these are the policies we want to see. I mean, that it was these young advocates who said, we want the list of schools under investigation, which for every, if your school is under investigation for race discrimination or uh, for Americans with disability discrimination, that is not a list made public. We want the list only of schools uh, under investigation for Title IX sexual assault to be made public. So they had a great deal of influence and there was no countervailing um, influence. So that's, that's one of the reasons things, I think, were pushed to those kind of extremes without hearing other voices. The woman on the aisle here. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Jenny Katzman. I'm from the American Constitution Society, and I also used to be an Obama administration official. So you can imagine, Emily, I take issue with a lot of things that you said. I'm probably also very unpopular in this room. Um, I'm also a former criminal defense attorney, and also um, am a little bit confused and distressed by your discussion of due process. But one thing I do want to talk to you about or get your opinion on is the analogy you made between sexual assault and drinking and comparing that to leaving your wallet on the table. Why is that more similar than a situation where you say a woman who's with a domestic abuser and she talks back to him, not saying that that's also her personal responsibility, or a woman walking home at night by herself who gets attacked. How are those situations not more similar to a woman who is drinking on campus, like many of her male peers, and in comparison to your analogy about a wallet? I'm not comparing a woman to a wallet. I'm saying we talk very openly to people. Uh, the when you have small children, look both ways. Even if the light says you can cross, look both ways because not everyone is gonna pay attention, not everyone is good. So I'm, I'm talking about things we freely say uh, to young people about how to keep themselves safe. Uh, young people who are inexperienced at drinking or maybe somewhat experienced at getting drunk in high school, anyway, you're at college, there's no curfew, there are no parents, there's no supervision. Alcohol is free-flowing and many people, it's a culture, I mean, it's not a matter of embarrassment. If you vomit and pass out, it's kind of a point of pride. And so I really think we need a cultural shift on that. I 100% agree with um, advocates insistence that everyone is entitled to their own bodily integrity. Absolutely. When you get blackout, pass out drunk, you lose the capacity to be in control of your body. So it'd be great if when that happens, only guardian angels come and take care of you, but you may be, find yourself uh, with someone with bad intent who does something to your body. You may find yourself with someone who's also drunk and whose uh, inhibitions have been lowered. So things that you two wouldn't normally do, uh, you end up doing. I, uh, you know, in these case after case uh, where terrible things happen to a young woman uh, who's been blackout or uh, unconscious. I know I've talked to my friends and I've talked to my daughter and if they listen, um, 
don't get yourself in that situation. I don't think that's blaming the victim any more than, uh, I live in a very nice neighborhood where a lot of people think it was so nice that people didn't lock their doors. Then there was a spate of uh, home break-ins. And the police, at one after another, would say, folks, help us out, please. The last four break-ins were in homes where the door wasn't locked. Help us out. Again, who did the crime? The thief. But everyone can do things to reduce their chances of being a victim of crime. I want there to be fewer young women who have to decide what kind of system to go through because something terrible happened to them. Better to avoid the terrible thing and better to avoid being the parents of the young man who walks off the roof because he's that drunk. So that's why I talk about alcohol. Yeah, and I just want to say, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a little surprised that kind of of all the provocative things that Emily says that that's um, the one, and, and I know it's a kind of provocative analogy, so maybe that was what got you started, but as the mother of um, college age and recent college graduate daughters, I, they need to, my daughter is living in DC now. I tell her to be really careful about what route she takes walking home. Of course, it's she should have the right to be free of crime. And if she is mugged, um, sh the perpetrator should be held accountable. But she can take steps to put herself in situations where she is safer or not safer. I say, you know, take the Uber. And with my kids, I've tried to talk to them about not drinking too much, about looking out for their friends, about making sure their friends look out for them. That doesn't mean that somebody who behaves inappropriately or illegally to somebody who is that incapacitated is free from uh, responsibility for that at all. But it does mean that you can take steps to make finding yourself in that situation less likely. And God knows we're not dumb enough parents to be telling our kids not to drink. We're just telling them to drink maybe a little bit less than the crazy amount that uh, young people these days appear to be drinking. And I just don't, I really did not understand when Emily wrote her excellent piece, which I then sent off to my daughters like the minute it was posted and then wrote a column about it. I didn't understand why it got so much um, negative response because it seemed like sheer common sense. So this will be the last question. You can ask questions afterwards. Uh, the, the, the speakers will be here for a while. Uh, and if I didn't call on you, don't be offended, please. The woman in the middle has had her hand up for some time. Yes. Hi, my name's Annie Lubin, and I'm also a student at the School for Ethics and Global Leadership. Is that, is that a high school? Yes, it is. It's a it's high a school charter semester school? program. It's, I'm sorry, what, tell us what it is. It's a semester program, so we get to come to D.C. and learn all about the city and the politics of, the, of D.C. for wow. a semester. Yeah. It's really cool. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, so I understand why clear and convincing could be considered a more fair policy to have, but ultimately because many cases come down to a he said, she said situation, which I would consider more of a preponderance of the evidence 50-50 uh, scenario, don't you 
ultimately end up with less justice for women who truly have been sexually assaulted, but only have their own word to go off of? Um, preponderance is not necessarily, and you will hear a preponderance is what's used in civil settings and administrative settings, and that's true. My concern about campuses is that they're so devoid of due process, so devoid of the rules that normally govern when you're dealing with preponderance. When you get to preponderance, when you have rules of evidence, when you know what the charges against you are, when you know who the witnesses against you are, where you can uh, challenge this, where you have an attorney, then we can have more confidence in preponderance. What's happened on campus, unfortunately, with preponderance, especially in the training Title IX people have gotten, is basically they've been told, get to 50%, then look for a feather. And that is not a fair way to do it. It must be, you, you need to fairly look at, in an unbiased way, uh, what evidence there is. Yes, in the room, it's generally two people. But often there are lots of people who could say, she couldn't even say her name. She was falling down. She was so drunk. Or I had a conversation with her 10 minutes before, and she said, you know, he's really cute. I'm going to his room. So there are other people who, you know, it, there's often more than the simple he said, she said. Uh, the uh, four female Harvard Law professors, uh, feminists who put out a, a white paper, Fairness for All, said, we don't intrinsically object to the preponderance standard, but it must go along with procedures we have more confidence in. That's why at this point, I think we have to work backward from that because the procedures that have been put in place are uh, have so far to go to have the confidence that a fair and unbiased uh, hearing has been held. Ruth? Yeah, no. That okay. Well done. Okay, now we go to the finish. We're going to go in just a second to the Winter Garden out front to have our uh, conclusion, where we'll have a reception. But before we do that, please join me in thanking Emily Yaffe and Ruth Marcus for an excellent, excellent conversation.